of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Good morning. <clears throat> Good morning and welcome to this last hectic weekend of Christmas shopping. It appears from the evening news last night that there are great deals to be had if you are brave enough to go to a shopping center this weekend. I'm not brave enough. Um, <clears throat> but it does appear, we're going to talk about a lot of numbers this morning, it does appear that um, the Christmas season will deliver almost $800 million in um, spending to America's retailers. And that's a a 4% increase over last year, um, which says that consumers are feeling pretty confident. And with the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years, um, I kind of get that. Uh, what I don't get is why, well, I do, but, you know, the, the interesting statistic is that all of that economic activity has not led to the two things one would expect, has not led to major wage increases for workers, and it hasn't led to inflation. Um, the second we can thank the um, <clears throat> the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell, whom the president castigates frequently, uh, for a very careful um, in management of domestic interest rates. So $800 billion in a month is a whale of a lot of spending. And we should all be encouraged by that number. And we're going to talk a lot this morning because I am a businesswoman. Numbers matter to me. Um, And we're going to talk about a lot of different numbers. But, you know, Washington's different this year in some ways. And in many ways, it's just same-o, same-o, same-o. Um. And so let's talk a little about that. In most years, the momentum in Washington, D.C. begins to ebb about the middle of December as what we call official Washington, that's the people that you pay to be there, okay, turn their attention to night after night of White House parties, lobbyist parties, and public interest group parties. Party, party, party. You kind of get my drift. Lots more Washington business is accomplished over canapes than in the hallowed halls of official Washington. 
you have to remember historically the word lobbyist was coined by the all they were all men in those days who used to stand around in the lobby of the Willard Hotel which if you've never been to Washington DC is uh, barely half a block from the White House and right across the street from the Department of Treasury <clears throat> and so the the these people who wanted to influence Congress, because remember, they didn't live there. They just kind of came for a session, and they all were at the Willard, right? Um, and so they would stand around in the lobby waiting to catch the ear or the arm of some administration official or congressman that they wanted to persuade of a specific issue, okay? And so we that, that began to be a serious activity in the middle of the 19th century, so 1850 plus or minus, and it was came, the term comes actually out of the Lincoln years, um, that these people who hung around um, to influence members of the administration and Congress would hang around in the lobby, and so they began, began to be called lobbyists. Well, today, those lobbyists have very plush offices, um, in beautiful high-rise buildings all over Washington, and um, they use the money that they raise or are paid by major American and, and uh, multinational corporations uh, to fund a bunch of activities. Now, lobbyists have a positive role to play in the American political system, and that is that they are people with deep expertise in a specific vertical that really can benefit members of Congress and congressional staffers in terms of how they learn um, indeed, you know, how they can research subjects. Now, it's not a substitute for the Congressional Research Service or for independent research, but they do have, they do provide an educational function. It's just over time that educational function has been um, overtaken by their uh, campaign contribution-related uh, um, activities, and those activities are buying influence. So in that century and a half that I've just quickly described, few things have changed. And as I said, from standing around in the lobby to these fancy offices and really deep expertise, advocacy, you know, lobbying has changed from advocacy to a profession. People spend their whole lives or they go to, they're a member of Congress and when they leave Congress or they leave the administration, they take a job with one of these lobbying firms because they have a great Rolodex and they know how to influence people in a way that you and I cannot. Even if you write one of those $2,500 checks to go to some fancy function, you have no way to compete with the influence of these professional advocates for a specific position. Another thing that has changed is, you know, from a quick shot of cheap whiskey, neat, as, as the British would say, um, these have now become canapes and cocktails. Um, I, I know people who, during the Christmas season, never have to buy groceries. They just go to these parties every night, and along with... Uh, losing some of their integrity, they give, they're well fed. So vast amounts of money pass between lobbyists and their targets. 
without which the whole system would be reduced to, gee golly whiz, the will of the people. Well, this year, things were different and things were the same in terms of the ebb and flow and the anxiousness of members of Congress to get out of Washington and go home for the holidays or on a taxpayer-funded uh, junket somewhere in the world nominally to do some business. So um, stuff happens in a rush at the end of the year in Washington. And when we come back from a quick commercial break, we're going to talk about some of that stuff that happened um, in the, the flurry of the last few days as people were packing their bags and running for the airport. We'll be back in just a moment. listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. As we said, as I said before we went to break, you know, as as much as as the momentum didn't ebb this year, in the final analysis of the last couple of days of the session, of the last congressional session of the year, the same kind of crazy things that happen way too often happened. And I think it's important to start to unpack some of those things because I don't think we can fix what's broken in Washington until we examine what we let them get away with. So... You know, while things were different this year, as usual, the federal budget, which was delayed, they did a short-term extension to get past the October 1 initial date, um, ended up being passed overnight with nary a member of Congress able to articulate what was really in the bill. Now, if you happened to catch the... Uh, highlights of, uh, I think it was Thursday morning's um, uh, Mitch McConnell speech on the floor, you would have noticed that the room behind him was pretty much empty, the Senate chamber. But on every desk, there was this big, tall pile of papers, several reams of paper on each desk. That, ladies and gentlemen, was the 2019-2020 federal budget. Now, The pages were not bound or collated. They were just stacked. So I can assure you that no member of the United States Senate who voted on that package on Thursday ever read it. Pieces of it were read and written by staffers whom 99.9% of us will never meet. And then those staffers who wrote this complicated, have you ever picked up a law and read it? Ah, you do need a a law degree. Um, these people then um, brief their member of Congress who then gets whipped by the House or by by the majority or minority whip into voting pretty much um, the way that your 
your party leadership tells you to vote. Well, in the case of this budget that nobody ever read or, you know, and, and as I said, in committee, they've had serious conversations about little pieces of it. But the majority of that budget is on autopilot. And so when it came time to vote, well, they didn't even need a uh, to push their button, their little vote buttons. It was it was a voice vote because there was nary a dissent. It was just yeah, 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 and we'll get out of town and we'll worry about this later. We'll go home and argue about how the government taxes too much, too much, and spends too much. So, for your edification, there are a couple of interesting things that you need to stop to start to pay attention to. Okay, there are a couple of highlights. Well, if you're a federal employee, a couple of million of those in the country, uh, you know the United States government is the largest single employer in the nation, okay? Well, as of, as of the first of the year, they will have, um, they will all be, in, each and every one of them will be entitled to 12 weeks of paid family leave after one year of service. Did you hear about a debate of this major new entitlement? Hell no, you didn't hear anything. You've, you've heard some promises of something um, on the Democratic campaign trail, but you've not heard a debate in Congress about 12 weeks of paid family leave for every federal government worker. Nope. How did they get this passed and you didn't ever hear anything about it? Now, I'm not saying I don't think that there should be such a thing as fa paid family leave. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a cruel person. And, yeah, I, I mean, I took maternity leave. I knew what it was. I know how hard it can be on a family when, you know, one of the principal incomes goes away for a while. And how that drives you back to work sometimes before as a new mother or a new father, you really want to go back to work before you feel like the baby is stable and 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 can manage for a few hours in the hands of a caregiver. Um, and so I'm not unsympathetic to the goal. I am unsympathetic to sticking this brand new government-wide entitlement inside the defense authorization bill. So that, and it was done in the good old-fashioned, what we used to call pork barreling. And we said, oh, about when we, when we cleaned up Washington under the, the contract with America, we said, no more pork barrel spending. We're going to be on the up and up. We're no more pork barrel. Well, this is pork barreling, okay, at its worst. Because this was stuck in the bill in order to get left-wing Democrats in the House to vote yes on the defense authorization bill. So they stuck something in there that, they, that the, the squad and their elk couldn't vote against. Now, I think that's pork barreling. You know, I come from a generation of people in the technology industry who cleaned up the mess that was made in the first couple of generations of technology um, when people would just add lines of, you know, code to make a specific circumstance happen um, without and, and without changing the overall structure 
until, you know, programs just disintegrate. I mean, this was one of the major things in California turning, um, keeping its its uh, computers running when it turned the clock to uh, the 21st century was going through and cleaning up a lot of these things that were buried still in that code. Well, in, in the modern world, we do thing in, things in modules so that we can pull them in or pull them out. We can see them as being distinct, simple, small, efficient, effective. Well, if you want to have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, you have to have laws which are small, purposeful, and are modular and self-contained that understand that they link to other things like government, you know, like every department's budget um, now has to accommodate uh, a certain um, uh, accrual fund to cover the cost of paid family leave, okay? There are those things. There are implications. But that piece of legislation should be seen, heard, debated, scored for, um, for cost, et cetera, as an independent entity. It's a big deal. It's intended by uh, at least the Democratic Party to set the standard for what all American companies should do. Now, in a globally competitive world, that's a really difficult, going to be a difficult rock to push up the hill. I'm not, again, I am not saying in any way that I oppose paid family leave. In fact, I support it. But I support it in ways in which it is, it is debated and passed lawfully in its own, in the context of, of how important and what a big hit it will be to the ongoing federal budget. So, I'm into small, simple, modular. That's what 21st century government should be about, not big, complex pieces of legislation that it would be impossible for any single member of Congress to be on top of. And clearly, nobody in the administration is going to be on top of all of these bits and pieces. In fact, I am not sure how the Defense Department is going to handle the fact that 12 weeks of paid family leave for every federal worker is now is now in their budget every year. This is pork barrel. I don't care that there is no infrastructure building related to it. It is still pork barreling. It's putting unrelated legislation into a bill in order to entice people who would otherwise vote against the substance, which is the National Defense Authorization Act, unless you put this sweetener in. And we are so far at $22 trillion and running in a national debt. We cannot afford to these little gimmies in order to get me a vote. So let's talk for just a moment about the federal deficit for the year. This budget that was just passed on a voice vote, yay, fine, we're all getting out of town. This budget contains a 1.4 
trillion with a T. Let me say that one more time. A $1.4 trillion deficit. And just for emphasis, it is a $1.4 trillion deficit. And while you're digesting that number, before we even talk about how to pay for it, let's go pay for a little airtime with a quick commercial break. Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with a $1.4 trillion budget deficit. Nobody pays any attention. But we should, because that debt now at $22 trillion with AT and running. Um, you know, Congress, because there's an election coming in because they don't like to tell you, you know, they want to tell you about what they're going to give you, not what they're going to take away. Um, Congress passed a no debt ceiling until after the 2020 election. Well, you know, everything that goes up must come down. The laws of gravity do apply. So, um, let's talk about that deficit for just a second. The Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, which is a, actually an arm of the Washington Post, um, released a report um, that blames a lot of the uh, deficit on the 2017 Republican tax cuts. Uh, They went back and calculated based on revenue on top line, okay, what the taxes would have been um, if the Bush-Obama tax rates had been retained. And and if you make the assumption that those tax cuts had no impact on the size and speed of the of the economy, that the economy would have grown at exactly the same rate. Um, it was three plus percent last year. It's been down to two this year. Um, if you make that assumption, then the Bush-Obama tax rates would have produced a staggering $984 billion more in revenue to the government this year, which would have reduced the deficit to about a half a trillion dollars, which would have moved the deficit in the right direction, down rather than up. Um, In fact... If that had happened, the deficit this year would actually be, well, although I view the number still significantly important, okay, the the entire deficit would have been somewhere between $300 billion and um, $500 billion, which is a whole lot different than 
trillion dollars. But, but, there is a counterfactual here. And that is, I don't believe the economy would be booming in the way that it is without some, at least some of those tax cuts. And I don't believe that, but I, and I also believe that the economy would be moving at a faster clip um, if we were not dealing with an ongoing um, trade dispute with Argentina, um, Brazil, the EU, um, and China, not to mention the uncertainties about NAFTA 2.0, also known as the UCM, USMCA, um, which passed the House this week but is in limbo in the Senate. So I don't think you can say um, that that the deficit would have been reduced, that the, that the retaining the Bush tax, the Bush-Obama tax rates would have produced the same level of revenue. I think that assumption is invalid. Um, but clearly, we cannot continue, although Congress does it year after year, um, with deficits that are ballooning. They're getting bigger every year. And the global market, you know, we sell treasuries in the global financial market because we can't sustain uh, managing all of that debt ourselves. And what the Treasury is finding is that American treasuries are becoming less attractive on the global market, at least in part because of very low returns. I mean, you, you're, you make a trade. When you buy American currents, uh, American treasuries, you make a trade-off for a smaller return <clears throat> on the face value of the, do of the uh, instrument for the security that you will get reimbursed for your investment plus interest. Okay, So you buy safety in the American Treasury. That's always been the theory. But we are now combining debt and our very low interest rates, finding it is difficult to sell enough treasuries on the global financial market. So there are three problems with that. One is just how much of our debt do you want China to own? Uh, bought with the dollars that we pay China for goods. <clears throat> Two, um, when are we going to reach a point when we need to begin to pay down on this and how will we actually accomplish that without stalling um, out the U.S. economy itself? Um, and three, just how little concern do we have for the diminished life expectant lifestyle and life expectancy that will drive for our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren? 
And that last question should be, in fact, the first and most important question all of us ask ourselves as we stand by and go, yeah, that's, that's nice, you know. Um, yeah, I don't tax my health care anymore. Um, if we don't believe that the world's going to end in 2050, and frankly, I don't believe the world's going to end in 2050. I plan to be here at that point um, <clears throat> to make sure it doesn't happen. Um, so I think at some point we need to stop spending and start thinking as we do in our family budgets, do I really need to spend that money? Is that really necessary? Is that important? Do I want to go into debt for something like that? I mean, when you start talking about you know, you have to ask those questions. And we're talking, one of the things we've talked a lot about this year, health care. Well, part of this $1.4 trillion <coughs> Christmas present we all just got is that all of the taxes that were used by the CBO to score the cost of Obamacare at only $1 trillion over a decade. Well, all of those taxes on medical devices, on Cadillac health plans, on the premium profits of insurance companies, in, in this $1.4 trillion budget, guess what? All those taxes magically disappeared at the same time that both parties and both houses of Congress have been attempting all year to expand benefits and reduce consumer costs. So let me guarantee for you that between the courts and Congress, we are going to talk about health care a lot next year. But for right this moment, as we approach Christmas 2019, the lesson is that Congress never saw a tax it could not defer in the pursuit of short-term voter approval. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk about health care for just a moment. Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. You know, both, both during the interminable Democratic presidential debates. And in both houses of Congress, we've heard about health care, health care, health care oh, all year long. And yet when it really came down to brass tacks, nothing got passed. H.R. 3 did finally pass in the House. Um, and it would reduce the cost of prescription dr drugs for Medicare and use. But but instead of reducing the cost of Medicare, they take that money and use it for other new benefits at a time when we're worried about basic Medicare uh, Part A 
um, the trust fund running out of funds in the next few years. And it would seem to me that if you could reduce the cost of Medicare Part D by $395 million or a billion dollars, you know, million dollars, that you would pour that money back into the trust fund instead of talking about new benefits. Not that I believe that it would be a bad thing to cover hearing aids, eyeglasses, and dental care for seniors. But again, instead of burying the cost portion, let's talk about finding the right balance between encouraging uh, medical innovation and, um, and exorbitant cost borne largely by the American consumer and the American taxpayer because you get it coming and going. There was one bill that was aimed at eliminating some unexpected emergency room bills, and it failed as well. There is also pushback within the administration of Secretary Azar's idea, an idea that was first socialized during the McCain presidential run, of posting the published priceless prices for services in medical facilities so that you as a consumer, I mean, you walk into a restaurant, um, you don't just order from the menu um, and then they give you a bill and you go, wow, I didn't think it was going to be that much. Um, You see, you get a menu with a price on it. Okay. The Secretary of Health and Human Services would like to offer you that same benefit when you walk into a hospital can't even get that through the administration's regulatory process, let alone get it enacted into law. And as a consumer of health care, you should care about that. Because sooner or later, you are going to be in the 5% that spend more than half of consumer spending in this country on health care every year. Now, those are the chronically ill, and those are also people who Let's say have a baby. Not that I quite figured out why it's so expensive these days to have a baby. But the average, the other, the other half of the population averages a couple hundred dollars a year in health care costs. So you're going to hear a lot of discussion about health care next year. And they call this thing Medicare for All. I think you got to stop calling it Medicare for all. Medicare is a special purpose program, and you pay into it through your entire working life. So think of it more as an annuity than as a health insurance policy. And that is different than what you've heard on the Democratic presidential trail. But I do think health care will be among the biggest issues in the 2018 midterm election because we already have so much debt and such a bipartisan fear of actually charging people enough to pay for the things we offer them that um, health care... We, we can't, we can't get to universal health coverage paid for by the government. Can't do it and, and maintain the rest of what needs to be done. So 
I think it's a healthy discussion. Something does have to happen. It has to be a public-private um, solution. Um, and, and I think it's well past time for the GOP to stop protesting Obamacare and offer an alternative that addresses three big issues. The cost of health care, because the cost of health care is what drives the cost of health insurance premiums. So we need to do some deep dive on why is it so expensive. Then we have to have improvements in access. We need different care delivery models. We need to ensure that health care is affordable for everybody. So to the GOP, I say, the time for just saying no is over. You got to have a plan. You've got to have a proposal. I support the idea that it's a public-private solution. But you can't just say no. And you can't go to the courts. Because ultimately, the Supreme Court is going to uphold, uphold the individual man, mandate because we have been there once before. So let's say one more thing on the subject of... $1.4 trillion deficits. You know, this is something I really care about. Um, we'll have some guests on early next year to talk about innovation in areas like healthcare and education, etc. But we're just one small voice in what needs to become a much bigger movement. The time for reckless spending, encouraged by votes that take place after all the holiday parties and before the dash to the airport, has to end. Regardless of the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, it is time for a bipartisan blue ribbon commission to be appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate to take on the issue of the federal budget to determine with the people of America what are our spending priorities, what levels of spending should be, and what the revenue sources are. You know what we call that where I come from? We call that a zero-base budget that determines what the government should be spending not the happy dance of incremental budgeting processes that allow unnecessary spending to continue and compound year after year after decade. We owe our children a better future than that. And we are a nation of traitors. We've been a nation of traitors since our founding. One of the major reasons, if we go back and think about it, for the Tea Party was trade and tariffs. So 2020 has to be the year in which we finally find resolution to the trade arguments and the trade war we are currently in the midst of because it's hurting the American economy and it's hurting you and me as consumers and as workers in this economy. You see 
MCA, or as I like to call it, NAFTA 2.0, because that's really what it is, okay, has passed the House, but it's going to have some really tough sledding in the Senate next year. And while the potential of some relief on the China trade dispute has been spoken of, I have very low expectations of what actually gets written down on a piece of paper and signed with an ink pen. And I have lower expectations of the Chinese really living up to whatever it is they sign up to. And just when you thought we could turn our attention to dreams of Silent Night, Holy Night, North Korea appears ready to deliver a Christmas or New Year's present in the form of an ICBM missile test. So the world is not a happy place. And just because you thought we had a little vote on impeachment this week, that it might humble the president, it turns out that when Congress tried to ensure that this year the $250 million for Ukrainian uh, military assistance would be promptly released by putting a little line of text in the law, the president said he would veto the bill if Congress insisted on guarantees of Ukrainians getting their $250 million in military defense. So. <clears throat> doesn't look like humility is on the menu for next year and we'll be back with a couple of closing thoughts in just a moment you're listening to reimagine america for more information on today's topic visit reimagineamerica.org reimagineamerica.org now Back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with just about three minutes to wrap up. Uh, It is my plan at this point, actually, to say that this will be um, this will be the last live broadcast. Uh, of the Reimagine America Radio Hour on local radio. Uh, Beginning in January, you'll find us uh, about probably at least twice and probably three times a week at both ricochet.com and the C-Suite Radio Network. And we're negotiating with yet a couple of other national radio um, networks. I've enjoyed the two years I've spent um, doing this little Sunday morning show but uh, there are considerations first. Um, a national platform is more interesting and helps to get better guests. And secondly, um, a national platform um, allows, a, a, it, it turns out that the economic proposition of a national platform is better than the local uh, platform has been. I want you to know I've enjoyed the time we've spent together. Um, I've appreciated the email, some of them positive, some of them not so, uh, and other comments. 
Um, and I hope that you'll continue to follow us at ricochet.com or you'll find us again in January at C-Suite Radio Network, where we will be the first political show on what is a basically a business channel. And so it will offer us some new opportunities to explore um, one topic, one topic at a time fully, uh, and then to supplement that with some more information on in the form of blog posts. But again, I wish you and your families <coughs> a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Um, we may be back next week or we may do a Greatest Hits show. Vince and I are going to talk about that. We'll look forward to seeing you at ricochet.com or on the C-Suite radio network beginning in January. And I wish everyone a blessed new year. Subscribe to the Reimagine America podcast at reimagineamerica.org and ricochet.com. Email Joyce at Joyce at Reimagine America Radio. Follow her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy, all one word. And you can follow the show at Reimagine Radio. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Take a minute now and go to www.reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. And join us again next week for Reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>